I want to tell you a story that happened over 11 years ago, um, right when Abby and I were first married. But before I tell you this story, to make myself hopefully feel better and maybe even look better, I want to preface it with a couple of uh, stories or at least a little bit of history. Uh, my entire life, the only roommates that I had that were close to my age were boys. Growing up, I had a brother, uh, an older brother, and we just tormented each other, as brothers do. I still don't fully understand why. It just seemed like the thing to do. And so I annoyed him. He beat on me. We wrestled. We screamed. We knocked over my mom's potted plants that she had in the house. Um, until And then now, now I'm older. No potted plants in the house. It's like when I was younger and they were at risk, potted plants everywhere. Our house was like a forest. I never understood that. She's like, don't, you knocked over my plant. Plants go outside, lady. That's how I always felt growing up. And, and so we'd knock those over. We knocked things off the wall. We broke all kinds of stuff. We just always fought. We pranked each other, you know, the occasional flush the toilet while someone's in the shower and then run and hope they forget about it by the time they're done, things like that. And then I got a little older and I went to college and then I was living with 30 other guys approximately my age. And that kind of behavior just carried on, especially the pranks. There were so many pranks. Like, you couldn't even get mad about it in college. It was just like, I mean, it was just a part of your day. It was like waking up and brushing your teeth, and then someone messes with you. That was just such normal, uh, a normal part of our lives. Um, it was very common to have your shower curtain ripped back and for someone to throw a five-gallon bucket of cold water on you. That just happened. I know a couple of people who got baby powdered while they were all wet. Just get out of the shower, and you're starting to dry off, and someone just, woof. Like, oh, man, now you got to go back in and redo it. Um, my roommate and I may or may not have lit some small fireworks outside of various people's doors in the middle of the night to scare everyone and then hide in our room so that we never got caught. Um, we also, one that we were exceptionally proud of, we had a guy on our floor convinced that his phone was broken and call Verizon and get a new phone because every week we called him about the same time and left the exact same voicemail. And he's, did you guys call? Nope. Nope. But we did it every single week, the exact same voicemail. It was just, that was more of a head game. But anyway, that's the kind of stuff that we did. Like, that was the kind of roommate I learned to be. And then I got married. And I thought, this is just going to be great. Because she's married, that means I can mess with her and she can't leave. Right? This is great. And so right after we get married, it wasn't too long in, Abby was taking a shower and I thought, I'm going to go find the biggest pitcher we got, fill it up with cold water, and I'm just going to dump it right over the shower curtain. So I did, and I'm giggling to myself the whole time thinking about how great it's going to be. And as soon as the water hits, I, she screams, I giggle, and then she started crying, and then I stopped laughing because I didn't know what that was. I pranked a lot of people, and nobody had ever responded that way ever in my life. I've thrown my fair share of buckets of water on people in college. I've done all sorts of stuff, and nobody ever cried about it. So I'm sitting there confused and a little scared, and she's crying, and I'm like, what's wrong? And she just says, you scared me. And then I felt bad. And then, and then she proceeded to tell me in no uncertain terms that I would never do that again. And I haven't. I learned my lesson. I've jokingly threatened it a few times, but I haven't done it again, okay? Now, 
That was 11 years ago, over 11 years ago. By a show of hands, how many of you think I've heard about that a time or two since then? Of course, you should. Every day. <laughs> oh. Now, that's the funny thing about our past. It doesn't always stay in the past, right? Certain things kind of come back to haunt us, taunt us, remind us of the mistakes that we've made, the dumb choices we've had. And unfortunately, a lot of the stuff in our past that keeps popping back up isn't all that funny. Uh, maybe you've had a struggle in the past with anger, and you've said things to the people that you love that were incredibly hurtful. And you've maybe said things or done things to the people that you love that were painful, and you regret it, and maybe even in the moment you didn't mean it, you were just all fired up, but you can't unsay those things. You can't undo those things, no matter how much you'd like to. Maybe years ago, you made a dumb financial choice, and it has just taken forever for you to dig yourself out of that hole. Maybe for you, it's a recurring cycle of sin, and you kind of always find yourself saying, I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to do it again. Oh, man, I did it again, whatever it might be. And maybe for you, the thing that you just kind of feel haunting you from your past is just like the fact that you didn't live up to the, the life that you thought you'd live. You had expectations for what life was going to be once you were 35, 40, 50, 60, and you're there now, and your life is just not what you'd hoped. And you think, did I fail? What did I do? Did I mess up along the way? And you replay your life in your mind, thinking of all the times you took a wrong turn. And so as we go through our lives, we kind of tend to find that our, our past kind of tends to show up in our present, and it even we even tend to think that it's going to change and determine what we're going to be able to do in the future. And I think when we kind of come to this time of year, it's kind of a natural thing for us to look back on the year, look back on life, and look at the new year and think, this year's going to be different. What's going to be different about it? How would I like things to change? And we'll maybe even set those worthless resolutions that don't even make it to February. And, and we try to be different, but again, so often the past tends to dictate our future. Now, it's amazing how we can let what we've done define our lives. We think, I've done it, my life is set in stone. The direction of my life is set in stone. Some of you, maybe you feel unforgivable for things you've done. That just kind of haunts you, that guilt of what you've done in your past. And you come to church and you think, Maybe if I come to church enough and do enough nice things, God will forgive me and he'll actually love me and maybe I'll get into heaven, but you're not all even, even all that confident in that process. Maybe you feel unlovable because the people closest to you, they don't know some of the worst things that you've done and you think, yeah, they, they, they're nice to me because they think they know me, but if they really knew me, if they knew about the DUIs, if they knew about all the things I've taken from work, if they knew about all those things I've done there's no way they'd still want to hang out with me and care about me. And so we tend to go through life with these struggles, with these weights, these things that we carry, and they follow us from our past into our present and through to our future. And, and we think we're stuck that way. We think this is just it. I've made my mistakes, and now I've got to live with it. But one of the most beautiful parts about this, this gospel story, which means good news, 
the good news of, of Jesus and the life he lived and the sacrifice he made for us. The beautiful thing is, is that he came to remedy a lot of that junk that we've done in our past and show us that it doesn't have to determine our future so that we can look forward with hope and excitement for what is next. And I think for most of us, once we truly can understand the grace of Jesus and the level of freedom that he wants to give us from our sin, from our mistakes, from our past, I think our, our love for him, our appreciation for who he is, is going to grow maybe in ways that you've never truly experienced it before. Because when you open the pages of the Bible and you look at the people that God uses, they're all a mess. I mean, just about every single person that becomes kind of the focus of any story in the Bible is an absolute mess. The only one who's clean from beginning to end is Jesus, and that was the point of his life, to live a perfect life because none of us could figure out how to do it. And so one of the guys who's a huge mess is a guy named Peter. This was Jesus' like best friend, his right-hand man while he lived on the earth, and Peter was a guy who spent probably more time with Jesus than anyone else. And Peter thought he had unshakable faith. He looked like a guy. If anybody's going to get it right, surely it'll be Peter. Peter's the guy who got out of the boat and walked on water with Jesus. None of the other disciples did that stuff. Peter's the, the first one to always speak up, the first one to always kind of declare how, how strong his faith is and how confident he is in his ability to walk with Jesus. And so we're actually going to look at a story of just Peter's absolute confidence and how horribly he fails. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. If you want to follow along, the verses will be on the screen. You can grab a Bible. There's one in the pew in front of you, or if you bought one or brought one, great. That's awesome. Sometimes it's nice to have it in front of you so you can follow along and refer back because the slides change as I read them, and sometimes you might miss something and want to focus back, so that's what the Bibles are for. Now, this is a story. We're going to read two parts of the story. The first part of the story takes place right before Jesus is arrested, right before he's taken to be tried for, uh, by the Jewish people for you know, claiming to be God. They don't like that, even though he was, in fact, telling the truth. And he's going to be beaten. He's going to be turned over to be crucified. He's going to be executed on a Roman cross. And, and the second part of the story, it happens right after that Jesus gets arrested. So he's not crucified yet, but Peter doesn't even make it all that far before he fails. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, we'll start in verse 30. Whoops, I jumped ahead. It said, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered. Now, there's a lot of times when you read through the New Testament, that's kind of how things go. Peter answers. He's always the first one to say something and open his mouth. He says, Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same now, I always get a kick out of how, how Peter just ha shows off such bravado in this moment, okay? Because you kind of miss it when you're looking at it, but, okay, there's Jesus talking to his 12 closest disciples. He says, you're all going to fall away. And Peter says, those idiots might fall away, but I won't. Even if they all mess up, I'm not going to mess up. 
I mean, what a very cocky thing to say, right? And so even if they all mess up, and then Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, you too. You're going to mess up this time. Three times, in fact, tonight. You're going to mess up. You're going to deny me. And then Peter essentially calls Jesus either a liar or says that he's wrong. Now, take in mind, Peter believes that Jesus is the all-knowing God, the all-knowing creator of the universe. And he says, nope, you're wrong, Jesus. That's gutsy. They've seen Jesus walk by a tree that wasn't making the fruity one and say, you're dead, tree, and the tree died. And he's like, no. He still has the guts to stand up to Jesus, which is brave or stupid. Both? I don't know. But he's so confident. But Jesus is never wrong. And so we go to the part where Jesus gets arrested and all the disciples scatter and they run away because they're scared. And they start to think, maybe this Jesus isn't the guy we thought he was. Maybe he's not God. Maybe he's not this Savior we've been hoping for. And Peter, as Jesus gets arrested, he kind of follows from a distance because he wants to watch what happens to his friend. And so, as they take Jesus into the temple, and he's being tried and beaten and humiliated by the Jewish officials, it says, Peter was <coughs> sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with, was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. In that moment, Jesus... Or, Peter was confronted with, I mean, the failure, the, the weight of what he'd done. Because even if Jesus didn't turn out to be the Savior of the world, we know that he did, but at this point, they all were doubting it. But even if he didn't, Jesus was still a guy that he had spent every day of the last three years with, someone who had shown him nothing but grace and kindness and love. And Peter just pretended that he didn't even know him. He was so ashamed and so scared for his own self that he just pretended to not even know his friend, wouldn't even stick out his neck for him even a little bit. And, and you know, I look at this story, and it's like, okay, Peter, Jesus says you're going to fail. And then he says, no, not me. I'm the best of the best of the best. I'll never fail. And, and all that, you know, all that bragging turned out to just be hollow pride that had no substance behind it. And you read a story like that, and you're like, okay, well, maybe that's the end of Peter's story. Maybe he's just done, okay? You can't, you can't pretend not to know Jesus. You can't just ignore your friend in their hour of need like that and still have any sort of a part in God's plan. But for those of us who know the rest of the story, we know that Peter was a huge part of God's continued plan. Even though we think, oh, yeah, he what a massive, massive failure this was, surely there's nothing more for this guy's future than this. And yet God had great plans in store for Peter. And, and it's funny because we kind of tend to be okay when we read the story. We're like, oh yeah, surely, it's, yeah, of course God forgave Peter and carried on, and, and that's fine because, you know, he was his friend and, you know, it's, God's forgiving. That's okay. And we're, we're okay with God using broken people when we read the stories of the Bible. But when we look at our own life, and we know the extent of our brokenness. And we look in the mirror and we think, 
Nope. Even though God can use those broken people, he can't use this broken person. Even though God loves those people in the midst of their failure, he's not going to love me in the midst of mine. Yeah, God overlooks their evil and forgives it, but he, surely my evil's too, too much even for God to overlook. And we have trouble applying the same grace that we see Jesus applying in the Bible to ourselves. We have a hard time believing that there's any future for us because our past has destroyed any hope of going forward. And, and sometimes we even, like, we'll start to make up and start to convince ourselves of very specific ways our future is broken. You know, maybe you've really messed up in your family. You've hurt people. There's a lot of people who go through a, a black sheep prodigal son or daughter phase, and we hurt the people that are closest to us, and then we kind of end up telling ourselves, you're never going to have a good family. You're never going to be a good mom or a good dad because of the way you treated your family. That punishment, you, you deserve a punishment for that. That failure is going to follow you forward. Or you're never going to have a healthy body because of the way you've treated your body in the past. God's never going to allow you to, to, have, to have any sort of health going forward because of what you've done. And we sort of make up these future punishments for our past mistakes. And we tell ourselves there's no future for you because of the past that you've had. But when I look again and again in the pages of Scripture, that does not seem to be the voice of God. Because when I see Scripture, again I'm reminded that God rarely, rarely uses good people. Almost every single time, God uses broken people who've done the worst things. It almost seems to be a prerequisite for God to use you, is that you have to be broken. You have to have messed up. You have to have completely failed at some, excuse me, point in your life. Um, one thing, one person I look at especially is Moses. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Moses um, was a murderer before God used him to free the people of Israel from Egypt. Um, then you get to David, King David, who was the greatest king Israel ever known. He was an adulterous, lying, scheming murderer. Again, a murderer. The Apostle Paul, when you get into the New Testament, before he became the greatest missionary the world has ever known, planting churches pretty much anywhere a church could be planted, he was a murderer. Now, in our worst moments, what do we say to make ourselves feel better? Boom. Yeah. At least I'm not a murderer. At least I, I'm not like I killed anybody. Yeah, sure, I gave my neighbor the finger, and I can't look him in the eye for the next month and a half, but at least I'm not like I killed anybody. Like That's kind of the, the things that we say to ourselves to make ourselves feel better. And yet here, when you look in the story, the worst thing that we kind of can conjure up, those are the people that God uses. And if God can use brokenness there, why can't he use brokenness here and here? Why can't God have a future for us? Why can't he end up forgiving our past and actually showing us grace? And that's what he does over and over again. That's what he does with Peter. Peter ends up being a huge part to having how the church gets started. He's the pers first person to preach about the resurrected Jesus to the Jewish community in Jerusalem. And then he's the first person to preach the gospel of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, to non-Jewish people. He's the one who kind of opened the door of salvation, in a sense, for, for the entire world so that Paul and all these other people could go out sharing the gospel and planting churches. And we see over and over again, this is how God works. He takes imperfect people, and he uses them for his perfect cause. He takes brokenness, and he pours out his strength through it. He takes our past, and he forgives us of it. He picks us up, he dusts us off, and he points us on to a better future. And so when we give our lives to Christ, we don't have to fear the future anymore. 
We don't have to feel like we've set our destiny in stone with our past mistakes because for those of us, again, who've trusted in Christ, who've decided, I want Jesus to be the, the cornerstone of my life, the, the foundation of my life, the one who fixes my past and leads me into the future. With Jesus, your future is determined by him, not your past. Your past is not the, the, the driving force that leads you on. Your mistakes don't hang over you forever. The guilt and the shame of what you've done don't have to be what determines how you live in the future, no, Jesus is what determines that. And Jesus says you're forgiven, you're loved, you're washed clean. Now, to be fair, and just to be honest, because a lot of people have a little bit of a, a, a sideways view of how this works, salvation in Christ isn't like an, an undo button on your past in the sense of sometimes there's still consequences of things that you've done. Okay, If you have colossally botched a marriage and ended up with a divorce and your ex has horrible feelings towards you because of how you treated them in the past, becoming a Christian isn't going to make them just be nice to you overnight because you spent a long time sowing hostility. If you did make a terrible financial choice and you're thousands of dollars in debt, giving your life to Christ doesn't magically wash that away. There are going to be certain bits of our past that do, that do meet us into the present and maybe even lead to the future, but, but the things that, that we tend to think, I'm never going to get past this, Jesus can repair that. He can even take those hostile feelings that you have with a, an ex-spouse or an ex-relationship or maybe even kids that you've burned bridges with. He can transform you from the inside out so that you can go meet those and maybe start to mend those fences, mend those bridges, and, and build and restore relationships that you had destroyed in the past. And so in Christ, you and I, we become a new people. You're, you're a new woman, a new man who has a new heart and a new mission going forward in life. And, and this new person that we are, we get to be led daily by the Spirit of Christ. And you know that when you look at anyone who's ever been used powerfully by Christ, you know that they've had stuff in their past that they're not proud of. I mean, I look at my life. When I was in high school, I used to use my mouth to just ridicule people and make people feel as bad about themselves as I could. I see it as nothing but the grace of Jesus that now I get to use my mouth to preach the good news of Jesus, week in and week out. And I know so many people who, they were their former drug addicts, former ex-cons and all this stuff, and they end up being church planters and ministers and missionaries. And you, you think, you see someone getting carted off to jail, sitting in front of a jury of their peers, getting convicted of terrible crimes, and you think, their life's over. They're, they've totally botched their future. And to see God redeem that, it lets you know, it lets me know that no one is beyond the grace and mercy of Jesus. Because God will work miracles in our lives if we let him. And, and so if you have this sense that your past is going to determine your future, I'm going to here to tell you that's not necessarily true, at least not across the board. It is not the end-all, be-all of life. And for the guilt and the shame that you feel of your past, you can be freed of it. And that voice in your head that says, there's nothing more for you. I don't think that's the voice of God. I think it might be the voice of the enemy. And so you don't have to carry that junk with you as one year wraps up and you start a new year. I think you and I can let those things go. And so if you have sin in your life, if you're that person that feels like you have chronic sin in your life and you just can't seem to get over it, maybe it's time to repent of that sin. Say, I don't want to be this person anymore. The word repent means to turn 180 degrees and move in a different direction. 
Maybe it means that you confess your sin to somebody that you can trust so that you can have accountability going into the new year. That's what a lot of people who have repetitive sin, they lack accountability by somebody who loves them and wants to help them move past it with grace and love. Maybe that's one way you can leave the past behind. If you have this nagging sense of guilt and unworthiness over you, keep coming back to the New Testament. Read the story of Paul in the book of Acts. Read the story of Peter through the Gospels. See what a giant failure he was at various times. Peter, if, Peter had his foot in his mouth so often. If athlete's tongue were possible, he had it. That's just the kind of guy he was. And, and read their stories and say, no, no, if God can show them grace, he can show me grace. And so if you feel like your past has ruined your future, then read the New Testament because God can use anyone powerfully, even people who are a mess. And then come to church and look around because I'll just let you know, everyone here, we're all a mess. We, we might, you know, put on some nice shirts and show up, you know, smiling on Sunday, but we're all a mess. Nobody, nobody in this room is going to run victoriously into heaven. We kind of limp there. <laughs> nobody, I don't think any of us at night put our head on the pillow and think, man, I just killed it today. Yeah. I put my head on my pillow every night, and, and I feel like, well, there's always tomorrow. Like, that's, that's kind of how this is. We're, none of us are, are killing it all the time. But yet God uses our weakness. He uses our brokenness, and he loves us all the way through. And so in Christ, we can have hope that we don't have to live according to our past behaviors, but we can live according to the new life and the new calling that we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful that we can have hope beyond our lives, our mistakes. You've shown us over and over again through your word and through the stories of how you've worked through people throughout history that weakness isn't a disqualifier. Sin isn't a disqualifier. Failure isn't a disqualifier. And that oftentimes you want to work through our weakness because then it shows that the only way that we could do some of the things we do is by your strength. It's a greater example of who you are when we're weak. That you, you love to restore a broken person and give them purpose and meaning in life. It shows us the amazing, amazing power that you have to restore. And it gives us a hint of the fact that you are working to restore all things one day. To restore this broken creation. To purify it from all evil so that, so that you can reign with humans once again. And have a deep, unhindered relationship with us. And so I pray, Father, that, that we would have hope going into the new year, that we would be able to let go of guilt and shame and, and understand that that voice that's constantly whispering in our ears that, that we're done for, that that's not a voice from you. No, you, yes, you want us to leave sin behind. Yes, you don't want us to, to guide us every single day, but, but you, you pick us up and you dust us off and you give us not just a, a first or a second chance, but you give us a hundredth and thousandth chance by your infinite grace and your infinite love that was shown through Christ. And so I pray, Father, that this would be a year where we walk into it with hope of what the year might bring, hope of what you might do, hope of the purpose you might reveal in our lives, hope of the mission you might let us follow. Thank you for being a God who loves us so richly, even in the midst of our mess. That is what separates Christianity from every other religion and spiritual teaching out there is that you loved us while we were still broken, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
What a beautiful message, and I pray that it never stops touching our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.